Hello, dear listeners. If you've been listening for a while, then you know that every spring and fall, I have a memoir offering, and I am pleased to announce that this fall's course rivals the best of them. From September 20th to October 25th, six consecutive Tuesdays, I invite you to join me and Linda Joy Myers and our guest teachers for The Courage to Write Fearlessly. We're bringing on Carmen Maria Machado, the New York Times bestselling author of In the Dream House. Today's guest, Stephanie Fu, author of my latest favorite memoir, What My Bones Know, Michael Denzel Smith, author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, and Jonathan Kirsch, who's a longtime literary lawyer. This course is about confronting and overcoming your fears from exposure to family fallout to getting it right and possibly avoiding getting sued. We've compiled a dream team roster, and there's going to be so much valuable information packed into these six weeks, all designed to bolster your confidence and support you to the finish line of your memoir, knowing that you are far from alone with the anxieties and hypotheticals that likely plague you. So join us for The Antidotes, September 20th through October 25th, and you can check out the registration details at www.magicofmemoir.com. Hello, loyal listeners, writers and authors, readers and book lovers. Welcome back to a new season, a new year of Right Minded. And we couldn't be more pleased to kick off this, our fifth year of doing the show with Stephanie Fu, the author of the new memoir, What My Bones Know. And before we get to today's topic, Grant, which is about trauma, so kind of a heavy one as a heads up for listeners, how was your August? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I wish I could respond with uh, some tales of a glorious vacation, but the summer sun didn't provide the playful free time it once did for me. Mm. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I, you know, when I was a kid, we took a two week vacation every year, usually in August. And now it just seems so tough to take two consecutive weeks off, you know, for anybody, uh, but definitely for me. And in fact, I, I was thinking about it. I haven't taken two consecutive weeks off in, in 10 years, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, kind of depressing. Uh, one week is manageable, but not two weeks. But this is all to say, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think it's really important to find ways to rest uh, for just the sake of your creativity and to rest deeply. And, and this is on my mind because I actually just wrote a piece for my Substack newsletter on rest and how resting is now a good way to get ready for National Novel Writing Month. You know, (laughs) don't write your outline now. Get some rest and recharge. And I've been thinking of ways to make rest part of my every day, you know, even in small ways. I think that's what the recipe for me is. Oh, my gosh. I'm so far from that. So I will eagerly read and see what I can implement. I mean, school started mid-month in August. So I already by this point, two weeks plus in, but uh, I don't know. For me, the maybe the rest and part of what I'm looking forward to about September is just a return to normalcy and routine because uh, that's what I've been longing for. Uh, but I'm especially happy to be back because we get new guests and new episodes. And I've been anticipating, Stephanie, uh, because this book, What My Bones Know, is my latest summer favorite. I, I do get fixated on a new book and especially a new memoirist, as you know. Uh, and as some of our listeners know, last year I was completely obsessed with P.S.A. Layman. So I think Stephanie is maybe my latest memoir crush. 
Yeah, there's nothing like having an author crush. So I want to hear more <laughs> about that, Brooke. What did what did you love about the book so much? You know, it's a combination of things. One, it hit really close to home. So the book is about complex PTSD. My ex-wife has this diagnosis. Um, and what CPTSD is, it's a relatively new diagnosis because I think people absolutely know what PTSD is. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex PTSD is a kind of different ranking of PTSD uh, in which, you know, the the layers of complexity and, and sadly to suffering are, are more extreme, usually earlier in life and over many years. So it's usually reserved for people who have sustained childhood trauma, uh, which Stephanie has. And, and so it's tough, you know, but I also so appreciated the book because it was laying bare what it's like to have CPTSD because she walks through that. But I also felt incredibly healed myself from having lived with someone who has this diagnosis because there is a, you know, unique kind of experience of, of being married or partnered or, you know, even friends with someone who has complex PTSD because it just manifests in all kinds of ways that are pretty challenging. But beyond it resonating so specifically, uh, I was also really pleased because books that center on trauma don't often get the kind of accolades and attention that what my bones know is getting. Uh, and I think this is because, or actually, maybe I know, <laughs> I actually know this is because the industry and people in general can be pretty weird about trauma. And I think I will qualify what I mean by weird because trauma is really complicated. And as a society, we ascribe trauma to a lot of things, right? I mean, you know this, Grant, like because you have high school age and college age kids, like kids say they're traumatized for even just the most smallest of infractions. And so do adults, you know, I mean, we'll say, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I, I witnessed something and I'm so traumatized or I did this and I'm so traumatized. And so the problem, of course, is that trauma has become really diluted in the culture. So people will say they have PTSD when they, in fact, don't have the diagnosis, which is not helpful, of course, to people who have PTSD for real. And then also PTSD itself is actually pervasive. You know, a lot of people legitimately have post-traumatic stress disorder. So the deal is that trauma gets dismissed and it can be seen as the industry as overdone. And so, um, you know, at She Writes, we publish a lot of books that center trauma, something that I'm really proud of. But I also know the reason that a lot of those authors are not getting traditional book deals is because trauma is seen as something that people don't want to read about or that's not worthy of unpacking in a personal narrative. And of course, I know that that's not true, um, which is, again, why Stephanie's rise and success has been super gratifying because I am a huge fan of any writer who can defy the odds and you know, prove that the industry doesn't always know exactly what it's talking about. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, and your idea of how trauma has gotten diluted in our culture. It's really interesting to me. And I think the phrase PTSD is, you know, it has become so overused in unfortunate ways. And I say that because I've actually overused it or misused it. And I was recently, you know, just kind of became personally aware of this. I was about to make a joke of some sort that I still had PTSD from some minor experience. And, and I halted because I realized how minimizing that casual usage was to people who, who deal with or have dealt with the true, you know, horrific force of real PTSD. And, and one thing about trauma 
for many is how hard it is to write about because you are literally going deep into your wounds and revisiting so much pain. And that, you know, hopefully is therapeutic, but not always. And I, you know, right before we got in this podcast book, I read this quote from Carmen Maria Mikado. And I think she was getting at the point of like, yes, it is brave to write about your trauma, but you're no less brave for not writing about it, you know, mm-hmm. um, that you shouldn't judge yourself as being not brave because you're not writing about it because it is just such a painful, challenging thing. And I think trying to publish a story about a traumatic you know, experience must be interesting as well, because you're constantly living with that experience while you're trying to publish the book. And it's, you know, it's not only personal, it's just so powerfully and overwhelmingly personal. So I wanted to loop back, uh, since you said that publishers shy away from trauma narratives, and curious about uh, how you suggest writers, you know, how they might position their stories, or are they, you know, are they supposed to soften them in some way? Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard question to answer yes to, but the answer is yes. (laughs) Some degree of softening of trauma is expected depending on the trauma narrative. Uh, You know, I think Stephanie's book has something unique going for it. She speaks to this too, that complex PTSD is such a specific classification of PTSD. And it's also, as she said, there had never been a memoir on the topic before. Uh, And I think that, of course, got a lot of people's attention. Um, But what I will say about trauma in general, in terms of softening it is like, even in Stephanie's book, a lot of it is built around her healing and her resilience and her efforts to move forward. And she talks a lot about rewiring and, you know, all the ways in which she works toward healing herself. And so the end of it is about the repair work. And I found that really moving, but I think that would have been essential to her book. You know, like if it had just been about what it's like to have the complex PTSD and not about the healing, I don't think it would have done the work that it needed to have done. And so I want to say to people, you know, maybe write your trauma draft first. And then after that draft is done, go in there and see what you can do to find ways to showcase the resilience and, and the healing that are sort of inherently necessary to these kinds of narratives. Yeah, and I know uh, Stephanie's teaching a class for you this fall, Brooke, as part of your Courage to Write More Fearlessly series, and that sounds amazing. So I'm, I'm just curious what she's going to teach about and if you can tell us a little bit more. Yeah, her class is called Overcoming the Fear of Getting It Right, <laughs> uh, which is a great topic because when I connected with her about what she might want to teach for the series, I originally asked her to teach Fear of Fallout, which is one of the classes and Linda Joy is going to teach it instead. Um, But Stephanie shared that she didn't in fact worry about fear of fallout because she had already basically separated herself from anyone that she feared potential ramifications of fallout from, like most notably her parents and her family. And so instead she proposed the fear of getting it right. And I immediately loved it because of the ways that memoirists struggle to get it right in lots of ways. You know, I mean, getting the facts right, getting your memory right. And so she's going to be speaking about the fear of representation, which she's going to touch upon a little bit in the interview today, Uh, the fear of being the voice of your community, which of course is scary for a lot of memoirists. Um, And then another fear is showing your version of events when other people might remember it differently. That's a big fear that people have, you know, of being contradicted or of not remembering correctly. Uh, And so, you know, it's important to remember that the histories are going to vary through the lens of different people's experiences. Uh, And, you know, families are just so complicated this way. 
Um, and it can be a really provocative and difficult place for writers, especially if they're dealing with trauma, if someone else, um, you know, sort of contradicts that trauma or suggests that you're showcasing it, you know, the wrong way. So these are important topics. I'm, I just can't, you know, wait to hear more about what she has to say about all of it. Yeah. And this is specifically one of the reasons memoirists are so brave. You know, I've never truly written something like that and put it out in public. And I don't center my fiction in my personal life story. But if I did, I would at least have the veil or the shield of it being fiction, you know, which which can be very protective. But that said, fiction still comes with hazards. I just read an interview with an author who had represented some real people in her life in her novel. And when they read it, they were very dismissive of it. And she, you know, was alienated from them as a result uh, because they thought they'd been misrepresented. And then that caused her to think about how she had also been portrayed as a character in a story. And she felt misrepresented as well. And she confronted the author. But the author actually felt like he'd represented her in a flattering or complimentary light. Mm. Um, So so this is all to say, uh, per your point, that there are layers to getting it right. uh, Because even if you get it right, others might think you got it wrong. Um, And you never know how a reader will receive and interpret the text. So you just have to do your best to write a fair and kind and true accounting, you know, whether it's memoir or fiction. And I am definitely looking forward to hearing more from Stephanie about what she has to say about all these topics after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We are thrilled to have Stephanie Fu with us today. Stephanie is the author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. She has written for Vox, The New York Times, and The Atlantic. She worked as a radio producer for This American Life and Snap Judgment, and her stories aired on Reply All, 99% Invisible, Radio Lab. A noted speaker and instructor, she has taught at Columbia University and has spoken at venues from Sundance Film Festival to the Missouri Department of Mental Health. Stephanie, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, Stephanie, as I shared with you, your book was one of those memoirs that for me was truly life-changing and also experience-affirming. My ex-wife has this same diagnosis of CPTSD, and I wanted to start out with that personal note because I wanted to ask you what it's been like to hear from people grappling with CPTSD. TSD. And also, I'm curious if you've heard from readers like me who are partners or ex-partners of people who have CPTSD in their lives and what kind of feedback you've gotten from this community about your book. Um, You know, I haven't had any really in-depth conversations with partners. Um, I've gotten a lot of notes from partners saying that the book helped them understand their partner a little bit better. And I certainly had a lot of messages from people with complex PTSD forcing their partners to read it Mm. and saying that they had some good conversations afterward. 
It's interesting. I mean, I think I, I wanted to maybe follow up because I know in the book, you reached out to people in the experience of writing it to say, you know, hey, does anyone have this? And it, I think it was, was out on social media and you said it kind of fell flat. And I'm sure that's in part because it is a really hard diagnosis for a lot of people to grapple with. And so there's a part of that that's kind of coming out of the silence in a way. And in terms of memoir writing and, you know, giving voice to silence, was that something that you struggled with in the, in the conceptualizing of the book? Or was it just something that felt so compelling and needed that you kind of worked through it anyway? I mean, the whole reason why I wrote my book was because there was no other book like it. I had no real desire to write a memoir. Um, I didn't I didn't even consider myself a writer, really. Um, the only reason why this stood out to me is when I was first diagnosed with complex PTSD, there were no first-person resources on it. There were very, very few resources, period, on it. There were a small handful of books, um, and most of them were very, very clinical um, and how-to books. And I was coming from the background of This American Life, Snap Judgment, where essentially I had harnessed the power of first-person storytelling for many years of other people's first person stories anyway, to help disabled people or people of color or whatever feel more seen. And so I was suffering from that precise problem in that like I felt completely freakish and alone because I could not see another first person story. I didn't see that I wasn't the only one. And so when I was sitting in front of my computer, literally trying to get books on Amazon, I said to myself, okay, if I'm able to heal from this thing at all, then it's my responsibility to try and write a book on this. It's my responsibility to create that first, first person narrative of having and recovering from complex PTSD. So it was very mission oriented the entire time. It's really interesting, Stephanie, because it plays into a topic that Brooke and I were just talking about and that how that's how trauma is is not an easy hook for publishers sometimes. And, and we mm-hmm. were talking about how trauma is sometimes looked upon as either overdone or nebulous in a way, like everyone has trauma. So it's interesting to hear how there there wasn't a book for you uh, to read. And, and I'm very curious what your experience of selling this book was like, you mm. know, did you encounter resistance because of its themes? Or do you think that because of your very specific entry point with the diagnosis of complex PTSD that you were treated as having something, you know, something more valid to say? Um, I think that I was actually really lucky in that. <laughs> I don't know if lucky is the right word. I don't know if I can be lucky to have complex PTSD. <laughs> um, but um, I think it did help me, the fact that there was no other existing literature, first-person literature on this specifically. So in my experience pitching stories for This American Life and other news organizations my entire career, you always have to say what you're doing that's different from everybody else. And so clearly I had something completely unique to sell. I was saying, this is the first memoir of somebody who's healing from complex PTSD. 
This is the first book written by a woman of color on complex PTSD. And then I gave a lot of statistics, basically that an estimated 50 million people could suffer from complex PTSD in the United States, that it's becoming more increasingly well-known and diagnosed, but historically it has not been. I wrote about how, you know, mental illness is certainly increasingly a hot topic. And I don't know, it, it, it was not hard to sell. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one, one more little thing, sorry, uh, that I forgot to mention. In terms of the whole, oh, trauma is unpalatable thing, I also put a lot of research into my proposal. Um, and so it was clear that it was not just going to be sort of trauma porn or even just like a list of the horrible things that happened to me, but it was going to be very healing based and, and based on real science and research and conversations that I had with many scientists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I made it clear that I had already done the legwork. Right. That's an important point for people looking to sell their own memoirs. Uh, one of the things I was surprised to like about your book actually were the therapy sessions because I teach memoir and I'm often trying to encourage memoirists to be mindful around including their therapy sessions or to pair them way back. Mm. But yours were in fact really enlightening. And I think that's because your therapist was so unconventional. And I also listened to your audiobook and I loved that you used the actual therapy sessions that you taped and that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in a memoir. So I was curious if you could talk to us a little bit about what considerations came up for you when it came to writing about your therapy sessions in the book. I think using the therapy sections was actually the easiest part of the entire book to write because I'm trained as an audio journalist and everything was audio. So it was basically creating an audio script, right? Taking my favorite cuts of tape and writing around them. It was barely edited and some kind of in there almost as its first draft, really. But I think what also really helped me, I think, is I'm very focused on creating scenes in the book. Even though a lot of what happens in the book is internal, a lot of it is me figuring out specific truths for myself, I always wanted to try and build in an actual scene, right? Because working in radio, one of the things that we're taught is to try and make it as cinematic as possible, make it almost like a little movie and have very vibrant um, scenes and instances to ground your big ideas in. And so I I did the same thing with my book and I, I believe that really helped. That's such an interesting lesson for writers. And I, I know that you're going to be teaching a class for Brooks upcoming courage to write fearlessly course. And that one of the things you'll be addressing in that class has to do with representing others through your memoir. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you're a voice for others with CPTSD and I, and you're also a voice of the Asian American community. And I know many authors bristle at being seen as a poster child for something like a diagnosis or worry about what others will think when it comes to making observations or critiques about their communities. So I was curious how or if these kinds of considerations um, affected how you wrote What My Bones Know. Oh, of course. Yeah, for sure. I think it affected my writing in many ways, and I and I had to face all of those fears. Um in terms of representing people with complex PTSD, 
um, in terms of representing my Asian American community. And I think that in the book, you can see that anxiety manifest in diligence <laughs> and research to try and get things right. For example, in the book, I had these memories of my Asian American community being full of trauma and abuse um, because my high school was like, you know, 60% Asian at the time. And a lot of my friends back then were suffering from similar forms of abuse that, as I was. But I didn't want to just say that, you know, without knowing that that was explicitly outrageously true. I didn't want to say anything about Asian Americans that wasn't backed up in a lot of truth. And I wanted to provide evidence for all of that so that it didn't seem like just some random stereotype or assumption that I was coming out with. I also knew that I was, you know, challenging a very popular myth, the model minority myth. I don't think Asian Americans are really known for, you know, child abuse. <laughs> um, and I, I think that we see a lot of the results of it. We see those amazing grades. Uh, we see Asian Americans excelling in their field. But I don't think many people who aren't Asian American knew about the cost of that and why that happens and how that happens behind closed doors. And so for me to say something so explosive, yeah, I, I really wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about. So going back to my hometown, interviewing my teachers in my hometown, other kids from my hometown, and most importantly, therapists and the school counselor and therapist at my old high school and having her affirm that this was endemic to that community was really important for me to put in the book. It was really important for my own healing as well, just to know that my trauma was not personal, that it was communal, and to see my trauma as something larger than myself to see it as something that was the result of systemic historical injustice. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Um, it's brave. And again, I know we have a lot of people out there grappling with memoir writing. And, and so thanks for those words. Um, you know, one of the things I loved about your book was how you explained ways that we can all be kinder together. You know, there's a lot toward the end about healing and resilience and you grappling with, um, you know, everything that you're doing around your own therapy. And one of the things I particularly liked was toward the end of the book about interventions and about how to change behaviors by rewiring your reactions or your reactivity. And you share an anecdote about a schoolyard exchange you witnessed where a boy was acting out. And instead of getting into trouble, the teachers at school make him feel included by talking through what was happening with his friends. And it was such a powerful scene. I'm a mom of a middle school age kid. Mm. And I could just see how much we don't support kids and that kind of mending and repair. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this part of your journey, the mending and repair part, and especially because I know it is a lifelong practice. Yeah, I think a big part of the first part of my journey was thinking that I needed to go alone in a hole and heal myself and not come out and not interact or talk to anybody until I was fixed, right? I think a lot of people with complex PTSD actually 
deal with those feelings of shame of being unworthy until you fix or heal yourself and it was working with dr hom that sort of illuminated for me that you can't really do that that that's impossible that a big part of healing from complex ptsd is building your relational skills and building your trust in others by failing with them and fighting with them and repairing with them the whole point of cptsd is that it's it's a relational wound that the people who were supposed to take care of you didn't and now you don't trust other people the way that maybe you know people who weren't abused as much might and you can't just go in a hole and and learn to trust you have to trust through practice and so practicing messing up in front of people and with people and mending relationships with people and having conflict with people that didn't need to end in abuse or abandonment, you know, was really critical for me to understand that I could feel safer in relationships, you know, safer in, in bringing up my needs, safer in feeling seen, safer in understanding that it's Oh, that it was okay for me to make mistakes. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, in closing, I'd like to ask you about some of the, the harder scenes you wrote, you know, the scenes of violence and neglect that you experienced. And in particular, I wanted to know if you have any advice for writers who are, are circling extremely traumatic memories um, for tips about how to approach that kind of writing, because it's obviously so hard and curious if you did it incrementally or, or what kind of uh, support team you might've had in place. And um, yeah, I just know uh, a lot of people grapple with how to write about trauma. So that our listeners would appreciate any, any guidance you have. Yeah. I think that um, I, I was really significantly aided by my diaries over the years because I had written about a lot of this in the past um, going back to, you know, being like 13 years old. And so being able to crib from my past selves was very helpful. And I think it was sort of draining. And so certainly having my husband be around to support me and having a lot of dumb things to do around that time. Um, I wrote this during the pandemic and I would set limits on like when I wrote and how long I wrote about this kind of material. Um, like I knew that I would be most productive and be able to write the most between like one and six and I would never write past six. And in the meantime, I would take breaks to watch a lot of Avatar The Last Airbender or play Diablo, <laughs> like play stupid video games. Um and allow myself for a lot of forgiveness and space spaciousness around that. But I think even then it was, it was easier for me than it might be for others because I was so dissociated. So I could write about some of the most horrible things that ever happened to me and I wouldn't have very many feelings about it, or I would feel like dead inside, maybe just dissociated. And what was really difficult was that I kept turning in draft after draft after draft. Like I, I rewrote the first 50 pages of my book probably like 30 times and people kept 
telling me that it didn't feel like anything. <laughs> like it felt really distanced because I had to be so dissociated to write it. And, and I've been dissociated from that trauma for my entire life. And so finally, after another note from my editor being like, I, I feel like I'm not feeling what little Stephanie felt at the time here. I decided to get in front of it, which is something that I've really learned a lot in my years of journalism, which is if you feel like you're hiding something, just get in front of that. Just, and so I just wrote, you know, people keep asking me how this felt and I can't tell you how it felt. I don't fucking know how it felt. It probably felt really bad. All right. Are you satisfied? And um, my editor, after she read it, was like, actually, that completely works. <laughs> so that's what's in the book. It did work. You know, it, it's effective. And I think it's honest. So that's, that's, I think, helpful advice for people. Stephanie, thank you. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, Grant, it's a new season and a new year of Right Minded, and we're sticking with book trends because there are just so many things to talk about. And I know that listeners are digging it because lately I've gotten some tips, uh, not only for guests, but also for trends. And so that's cool. And I just want to say to people listening, keep coming because it helps us. Uh, this week's trend is the antitrust lawsuit that was playing out through the month of August um, over the acquisition of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random House. And so, you know, Grant, we're recording on the last day of the testimony, actually. So we, you know, it's probably decided by the time this airs. But I, I still think it's a really important topic and trend to talk about because it's essentially about consolidation in the industry. So if uh, Penguin Random House wins the lawsuit, then there will only be four big publishing houses in the country rather than five. It's ironic a little bit because, you know, a lot of these big publishing houses are owned by foreign interests, basically like Hachette is French, Bertelsmann, which owns Penguin Random House is German. Nevertheless, our government is suing or did sue Penguin Random House to prevent its acquisition of Simon & Schuster, citing that the merger would create a publishing behemoth and harm authors and consumers. Yeah, this has been such a fascinating development in the world of publishing, Brooke. And this lawsuit has been, you know, it's been on the horizon for a while now, but finally proceedings started this month. And it's very possible we'll have a decision by the time this uh, episode airs. But what's more important trend-wise here is that I want you all to know some of what's at stake in the trial. And I got to say, this has almost been a little bit like watching divorce proceedings in real time, <laughs> uh, meaning that the trial is opening the hood to how a lot of big publishing works. It's a little bit like, you know, kind of catching snippets of the, the Johnny Depp trial earlier this year. Right. Much more interesting to me, though, I have to say. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> the argument that uh, Penguin Random House is making is that acquiring Simon & Schuster will not make it more dominant 
dominant than it already is, which is at the heart of an antitrust case, of course. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people who are tracking the proceedings, of course, are disagreeing with that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting debate. And as an industry watcher and critic yourself, Brooke, I'm, I'm curious uh, if you think this merger is a bad thing for publishing, especially, you know, I've been thinking we've been having merger after merger after merger for 20 or 30 years now. Yeah, no kidding. And honestly, I I don't. You know, I don't think the merger is going to be harmful for authors. I think who the merger is going to be harmful for is literary agents, you know, because what's at stake here is the big money. And the reason that a lot of industry people are all up in arms about this merger is because it means fewer big publishers. There's already plenty and plenty and plenty of small publishers. So the people who will lose out are only the authors who would really hope to get huge advances. And I'm talking like the quarter million dollar kind. And agents, therefore, would stand to lose because they're the ones who rely on those kinds of advances. You know, if an author gets 250000 an agent gets their 15%, they walk with $37,500. And if you sell four of those in a year, then you really can make a living as an agent. And, you know, but in my world, <laughs> where regular authors are concerned, I just don't think this acquisition is going to change all that much. And where small publishers are concerned, I actually think we kind of benefit from the consolidation of big publishers. Yeah, what an interesting take. And I actually haven't really heard that. Um, as one who is all for small publishers, I'm thinking, what irony to think that I should root for a merger. Um, <laughs> so, so tell me more. Yeah, I mean, you know, consolidation of the big five into the big four just means that smaller presses are going to get more opportunities to get projects that the big publishers will pass on. And they pass on projects because of the way that houses bid on books, right? So sometimes the editors in the same houses or even under the same parent company don't or can't bid against each other. Um, and this is why the case is legitimate in the first place, right? If the DOJ is worried about healthy competition, it's true that the consolidation of these entities might mean that the authors at the very top levels, you know, are going to see fewer bids for their project. But this kind of bidding is also just for me, has always been industry sanctioned gambling. It's completely crazy. Um, and many, many times, most times those books don't earn out. They can create pariahs out of authors who are just starting their careers because the authors don't earn out their advances and then their next books are not desirable. I find this criminal. Uh, and the DOJ is acting as if there isn't this other huge thriving ecosystem of smaller publishers out there who are acquiring and publishing great books, you know, and those are the publishers who are taking the risks and the ones who are launching the careers of authors that usually end up having the greatest long term successes. So, you know, those smaller publishers are going to continue to play their very important roles. And I hope just get a little bit more credit for what we do. Very interesting take, Brooke, and definitely not the view the DOJ is taking on this. And <laughs> I, I have read how the DOJ just doesn't really understand many facets of publishing, which I also find interesting, and that especially relates to small presses. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the verdict is on this. And listeners who are interested to find out more, there's free coverage of the trial at Publishers Weekly, where they're rounding up their stories at publishersweekly.com. But as a reminder, what matters most in this world of storytelling is actually your story and writing that story. So we will be here every week in this fifth season of Right Minded. I have just one request of you. Keep listening and invite your friends, your family and strangers you meet at the grocery store to listen along with you. That's actually two requests. So I'll make a third. Please know how grateful we are for your support and your listenership. 